The views and opinions expressed on the Untold History Revealed podcast are solely those of the individual stating them and are not necessarily those of the Untold History Revealed owners. Now sit back and grab a cup of coffee or tea as we discuss some moments in history that may have been untold or forgotten. Another episode of Untold History Revealed starts now. gang and welcome to another episode of untold history revealed i am your host sean donnelly and i'm your co-host marianne donnelly um in all of our broadcasts we pretty much tell you who we are and why we're doing this and that kind of stuff um this is actually part two of a previous one so i'm not gonna waste time doing that called the traveling declaration yeah um we're continuing on with um season two episode two so this would be season two episode three um the traveling declaration part two yes <laughs> yeah um so in the uh previous one you were talking about the uh you brought up that word what is it anesthetic copy <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yes. what is it anesthetic copy anesthetic um but uh you had some more about the condition of this thing when it was hanging in the patent office, which is quite amusing. Uh, when I put it in pause, she goes, I didn't finish all that stuff I was talking about. I'm like, oh, okay. So um, the the copy process is interesting, but continue on with some of this stuff. Okay, it's so like, this blows my mind. Folks. For those people who haven't listened to part one. Yeah, stop now okay, and get part one. Go back, one, so listen you know to part one on. so you know where we are and what's going on. But um, it, in the... 1800s in 1841 uh, we had Daniel Webster who was Secretary of State decide that he wanted to give the declaration um, custody basically to the patent office he thought that that along with some of the other documents was important that it, it go there for safekeeping and so he passes this on and it goes into this new building that's supposed to be like awesome, and um, awesome. yeah. So <laughs> they decide that they're going to hang this um, so that people can come by and see it and look at it. By the way, you know it's almost two in the morning. That's okay. Right. I'm still excited and talking, and I don't sound like it's two in the morning, You're do like, I? We're not going to bed tonight. Yeah, I get really giddy when I get to talk about stuff. Um, but anyhow, um, they do put it out where people can see it that was one of one of the reasons safekeeping and also so that people could see it on a regular basis if they wanted to um and so they hung it on a wall opposite a window that had wonderful exposure to sunlight so that it was nicely seen all the time and it remained there for 35 years on exhibit and of course that kind of exposure to the sunlight did not help with the already deteriorating you know ink and paper and things like that so that was not helpful but also you know it was not always you know like our climate controlled buildings today where the temperature is the same and all that what was the date of this in the 1840s, oh, definitely. you no know, air conditioning. yeah. So there was there was fluctuating temperature that happened. There was relative humidity that you know varied. So all of these things really took a big toll this is on DC, this. So it's it's hot yeah, and sticky, humid. and then cold and freezing. Yeah. It, it it was so varied. 
And they, the, all, all that really took a toll on the declaration. Of course, that anesthetic copy that you're going to talk about a little bit here. I'm not talking about it. You're talking he, oh, about I'll let Go you ahead. talk about it too. Um, <clears throat> that was done during the time period that it was in the patent office hands. And all of this really led the, the declaration to look bad. Yeah. It just started to, it started to really look not so healthy. And um, it was actually written down in several different magazines and newspapers and things about how bad it was starting to really look. And uh, one of them was uh, in the United States Magazine. I have to look up some of these magazines and things because they're really cool names. I want to know what else they had in them. Um, But in October of 1856, uh, it was written down in that magazine that the declaration was that old looking paper with the fading ink. And then uh, a gentleman named John B. Ellis um, remarked in The Sights and Secrets of the National Capital in 1869 it is old and yellow and the ink is fading from the paper. And then. So that was 18. 1869. 1869. Mm-hmm. And then in 1870, an anonymous writer in something called the Historical Magazine actually wrote the original manuscript of the Declaration of Independence. See, now, th- this is right here. Th- right there. Let's just stop a second. Okay? okay. This is why I wanted to do this podcast. In 1870, they wrote the original manuscript of the Declaration of Independence. That is not true. It was the original copy wasn't the original True. manuscript. It was the original copy. The copy was signed. Right. So let's get it right, folks. <laughs> I'm going to go travel back in time and smack this person. Well, because this one was anonymous, setting... so you're going to have trouble with that. I know, but you see what I'm saying? It's <laughs> yes. not the original manuscript. The original manuscript is lost. Yes. We don't have it. The right. original one written by Thomas Jefferson where he made all those notes on it and those 86 changes, all that stuff, it doesn't exist. This we is know the original of. copy by Timothy Matlock, who's an assistant to the secretary, secretary of, blah, 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 of blah, the blah, Congress blah, that people signed. Right. Okay. I'm sorry. It just got me upset. <laughs> Go ahead. And for those of you who didn't listen to... You know, our <coughs> previous podcast, you might want to go back a couple of episodes and and all that stuff he was just rambling about. You know, that was two episodes it's ago. late and I'm drinking coffee. So I'm... <laughs> okay. So anyways, the um, the anonymous <laughs> really writer... These episodes like this because now I'm like, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so the anonymous writer in 1870 wrote... The original manuscript of the Declaration of Independence (laughs) and of Washington's Commission, now in the United States Patent Office in Washington, D.C., are said to be rapidly fading out so that in a few years only the naked parchment will remain. Already, nearly all of the signatures attached to the Declaration of Independence are entirely effaced. Go ahead. Washington's commission? Yes, the commission for him to be president. Oh, oh, okay. Gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yes. Okay. Okay. So that document's got issues as well. It does. Okay. The patent office did not do a quite remarkable job of protecting these things. Yeah. Although neither did traveling all over the country with them, Mm. so... 
1873 in May, the historical magazine also published an official statement by Mortimer Dormer Leggett, who was the commissioner of the patent office at the time, and he admitted many of the names of the declaration are already illegible. So this was back in 1873. Yeah, 1873. Mm -hmm. The names were... Already illegible. Wow. Yeah. So... That is its time in um, That's less the than 100 office. years. Yes. <clears throat> what do okay. you think about that? Yeah. It's a shame. Well, pff, you could see why. I mean, if they if it wasn't faded and wasn't, you know, have man, that's like a super document because it traveled and all the copies <laughs> and hanging in the sun and, you know, let's give it a tan and all this other stuff. It's no wonder Give it a damn. <laughs> <laughs> oh. All right, so let's talk about this anesthetic. All right, go ahead. What is it? Anesthetic. 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 Yes. Anesthetic. Whatever. Um, that copy of process is 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 pretty much the same as the wet process. Right. It starts out as a wet process, and it was actually <laughs> done in 1845 by John J. Smith, and again that was. During the time period that it was under the patent office control. Now, I wonder if anybody could just go down there and say, hey, you know, I want to make a copy of that. Sign it out. Make a copy. <laughs> I'll put it back. I'll put it back on the wall in the sunlight before morning. Yeah. Um, although these copies came out to be pretty good, I mean, as far as legibility and things like that it really did some damage to the original oh absolutely Um, just imagine taking any piece of paper that you have today and putting a wet piece of paper on top of that yeah (laughs) what what happens to that piece of paper you know but these copies seem to be preserved better because of the copy of or the coating of varnish that they put on top of them um so um anyways I, i did find an article that talks about one of these copies and this kind of delayed us a little bit later is once i found this we were like oh my god what's that mean you know we had to look that up but uh this guy named tom uh lingenfelter he's a a dealer in rare historical documents he actually (laughs) he goes to a flea market and finds one of the best copies and in anesthetic copies. copies of the Declaration of Independence in 1992 in a flea market. I At want a flea market. I wish I had gone to that flea market because I would have this thing now. But um, it doesn't say in this article though how much he paid for it or no, it or really. How much it's I worth, didn't see but, it either. Um, they actually call it the anesthetic fact simile. Um, that's actually what was printed on the bottom left of this copy. So I'm, just, I'm assuming that's the word where the word facsimile came from. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah. And we try to determine where, where who actually made particular... that copy, but it well, could have been anybody, right? It was or supposedly, it was it was supposedly was John J. Smith in 1845. That, that made that And he copy. put that together based on, like, dates and stuff. And, okay. Right. But where that is at now, 
it seems to be doing just about as much traveling as you the declaration. The yeah. 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 And we think that, I think, Marianne says that we're wrong, or I'm wrong, which, but shocker. Um, <laughs> uh, I think we came actually pretty close to this, this copy when we were in Philadelphia, but. I don't know. I don't know. It supposedly left. In 2010, you said in it 2010. was. In 2010. after that. Yeah. But there's a, there's a, uh, <clears throat> there's a know. building that's down a few blocks away from Independence Hall. It's called the Declaration House. Yes. And the reason why it's called that, that's the actual building where Thomas Jefferson was when he penned the original manuscript <laughs> of the Declaration of Independence. And the desk is there and things like that. And I'm sure yeah. we'll get a ton of pictures and things We're like gonna that. We're going to have to go back through our pictures and see <clears> if, if, see if, that if that's there. there. I, I remember seeing... I remember seeing a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Now, whether it was that one, yeah, that this is talking about, you know, and I'm I don't know. I'm I'm older, you know, than Marianne. Okay, I'm I'm eight years older than Marianne. We go on these trips, and I kind of start out out of the gate with all this energy and everything. But my size and my age, after about four or five hours of walking around the city, I'm about ready to go take a nap. <laughs> food and a nap and this was like towards the end of our running around philadelphia and if memory serves me correectly it was almost closing time for this building and so we didn't spend a lot of time there well we waited remember we went into that building it was hot i remember going in there and we went in and waited because the air conditioner was fine so i kind of like i'm okay with that but you know how i am about waiting for things i'm i don't have very good patience when it comes to that stuff. But we were waiting for a tour. Because I think they were going to have a tour. Yeah. yeah. The final tour of the So day. now you remember the building. I remember the building now. You didn't remember yeah. that. But um, this was towards the end. I mean, we were in Philadelphia all day. And yeah. I, I, I'm i pretty sure there was a copy of something about the, independ- the Declaration of Independence there. But I don't know if it was that copy. We'll have to go look at those we pictures. We will definitely have and to. And if it was, wow. You yeah. know, I... But I don't remember. I would have remembered if they would have said, "This dude found it at a flea market," you know. But right. But then again, we did. It was at the end of the hear, day. We didn't hear and, their tour. Yeah. You know. It was just like, so come they on, may... we're done. Yeah. Let's go. But. So we'll have to look into. And that. I think I might have waited for you at some point during that tour. I went and sat down. You kept going or whatever, but. Um, yeah, it's one of those things I kick myself with. Like, we go to Washington. No, oh, we don't need to see the White House, dummy. You know. <laughs> anyway. Uh, anyways, I digress. This is why we run out of time on these things. Continue on, my dear. Oh, did you have anything else to say? About I, I that don't think so. Static copy? No. I don't okay. think so. I just so found it's it. just I find it interesting. The same thing <coughs> you do. I think that he <clears throat> found it at a flea market. Uh, one thing I do uh, I could say about it is that that process was actually it came from Germany, and um, that's that's the process that they used in Europe as far as copying, preserving documents was the anesthetic. And then those co- those types of copies often destroyed the original document. Yes. yes. So we do know that our declaration. What the the August second copy 
was damaged through these processes over time. Well, this is probably, I don't know how many times they actually used that process on it. I mean, we, we know of two. We know of two that we found documentation, but I'm sure that was like the clincher. Yeah, because that, how many times can you lift that off, like you said, with the silly yeah, putty you effect? You only got so much ink on there. Right. You know. And, I, and I'm surprised that these people didn't realize it back then. They're like, oh, okay, well, you know, it's, it's all faded and deteriorated. Well, why? Well, quit copying the freaking thing. <laughs> well, since you kind of mentioned that, uh, it's a good segue into the third, you know, portion of the lifetime of the Declaration. Um, and this is the centennial time and when they were really worried about preserving it. We want to make sure that it's preserved. So in 1876, for the centennial celebration, they actually take the declaration. Oh, we're going to move it again. Back to Philadelphia. And so it gets to go on exhibit for the Centennial National Exposition, and it's on display from May to October. And uh, it was under the entrustment of... To go by water? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not sure exactly, but I don't think it went by water again. I think it went by by road again. Um, But it was under the entrustment (coughs) of mayor of Philadelphia at the time, William S. Stockley. Um, President Ulysses S. Grant granted him with temporary custody of the declaration. Wow. Yes. That's interesting. Um, and in a public ledger for May 8th of 1876, it's noted that it was actually in Independence Hall and that it was framed and glazed for protection and deposited in a fireproof safe, especially designed for both preservation and convenient display. And it turns out that it had these doors on it, and so the outer doors of the safe could be opened and the parchment would be visible behind plate glass, but then at night they closed those doors. And, of course, this helped. So what was the year? Uh, 1876 for the oh, actual this. centennial. Okay, so the National Treasure 2 was wrong with that comment. Where yes! Says, I was just thinking the last time this document was here, it was, it was being, being signed. signed. And that wasn't true. That I thought about not, that when I read that originally, that, too. That was not true. It was there uh, it, for the centennial. Now, unfortunately, so it the was writers not... of National Treasure Two. I don't want to knock you because we want National Treasure Three, which will <laughs> probably never happen. But you know, hey, you got one wrong. Yeah. But anyway, um, like they're listening to our podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. You get those six. What's that sixth removal from somebody? You know, I don't know. Oh, so, uh, oh, the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon yeah, thing. Yeah, six. It's, I think it's six. But. Oh. Well, if you're a writer of National Treasure (laughs) 2 and you heard that comment, you know, somebody forward, send me an email. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Anyways, um, so they had it sort of so that they were trying to preserve it already at this point. I think that was actually in one. That was one. That was one. Yeah, that was in one. But anyway, uh, there were, of course, some descriptions of how it was not quite as beautiful as it once had been and things like that. Um, <laughs> Wonder why. Yeah, it, it was written that the text is fully legible, but the major part of the signatures are now so pale as to only be 
dimly discernible in the strongest light. A few remain wholly readable, some wholly invisible, and there are spaces which contained them presenting now only a blank. I have a theory as to why the signatures started to go before the other. Please do tell. I wonder if it's not the same type of ink. Not the Iron Gall ink? Yeah, because, now, if most of them were there, those were probably the ones that signed it on August 2nd. I'm making an assumption. I don't know. We're going to have to look that up. But they could have used that same ink that it was written in. Okay. True. But then you have these other people that sign it later on. It could have been a different batch of ink, not have the same type of chemical compound or whatever, and maybe that's why they faded before the actual that written part of the text. That is a. I like that theory. We. I like that theory. We're not going to look it up. We have okay. other stuff to talk about. Okay. We need to start a notebook <laughs> of things to look up later, and then yes. we'll come back to it. You know. If we have time before we die. <laughs> oh my. All right. Something well, to give your next husband after I'm gone. Here, look these up. Here's Sean's notes on how to do the podcast. <laughs> I know it's late. Sorry, we're getting morbid, folks. But okay. It is what it is. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, on the 4th of July. 1876 for the centennial the text of the declaration was actually read aloud and then they thronged the independent square um, I'm assuming Bell and a gentleman named Richard Henry Lee of Virginia who turned out to be the grandson of the signer of um, the Declaration of Independence, Richard Henry Lee, who is also the one who is the Lee resolution, resolution which I keep forgetting the word resolution now. Um, so it, he, he wrote that the fading and crumbling manuscript is held together by a simple frame, was then exhibited to the crowd, and was greeted with cheer after cheer. Wow. So that is the grandson of the signer. And, well, not the signer. And the guy that proposed, hey, hey, folks. Let's separate. Let's separate. Mm-hmm. Wow. Mm-hmm. So, this is kind of interesting. I wonder if that family is related to... Robert Ely. Robert Ely. I know. Which, I, that's you know, it could be. It could be because Virginia. Yeah. Wow. That's amazing. Where's that notebook? Yeah, where's that notebook? Because <laughs> you got to look up and see if these Lees are related. That's definitely a look up. All right, so by late summer, um, we really started to worry. You know, we had all these people writing about how bad it looked and everything, and it's at the 100th celebration, and, you know, oh, it's just not quite so pretty anymore. By August 3rd of 1876, Congress adopted a joint resolution providing that a commission consisting of the Secretary of the Interior the secretary of the Smithsonian Institution, and the librarian of Congress to be empowered to have um, resort to such means that will effectively restore the writing of the original manuscript of the Declaration of Independence with the signatures appended there. 
and one candidate to the task was a gentleman named William J. Canby. He was an employee of the Washington Gas Light Company, and he wrote to Congress um, and said that he had, you know, plenty of experience, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he suggested that the only feasible plan to replenish the original was to replenish the original with a supply of ink that has been destroyed by the action of light and time with ink to be well known for practical purposes imperishable. So he wanted to write over it with more ink. So they didn't, obviously, they, they haven't done that. No. Right? The commission no. did not take up on that action. They decided not to do anything. They decided, okay, we're just going eh, to we're just kind of stop it from. Yes. So they didn't make any attempts to do that. And you know, now I want to I, I go to Washington, you know, after doing this. I want to go. I want to go see this. Well, there is always next week. I know. Um, <laughs> so anyways, after the conclusion of the Centennial Exposition, they did actually, in Philadelphia, make attempts to keep it. They decided, hey, I really want to keep this here in Philadelphia. Um, but these attempts did fail, and they did return it back to the patent office in Washington. Unfortunately, back to the patent office. It probably, if it would have just stayed in Philadelphia all that time, probably would have been a little bit safer. But in any case, on April 11th of 1876, Robert Duell, commissioner of the patents, wrote to a guy named Zachariah Chandler, who was the secretary of the interior, and suggested that the declaration and the commission of General Washington that were in the same frame together belonged with their department at the Department of the Interior and should be there as heirlooms. He seems to have ignored that because there doesn't seem to be any correspondence back saying, yeah, okay, great, I want to take that. Um, but eventually there is an exchange of letters with Secretary of State Hamilton Fish where they agree with the approval of President Grant to move the declaration into a new fireproof building that the State Department was sharing with the War and Navy Departments. This is now known as the Old Executive Office Building. And so on March 3rd of 1877, the declaration gets placed in a cabinet on the eastern side of the State Department Library, where it was exhibited for 17 years. And just so you get more of the what this declaration went through in its lifetime, it was placed into a room where smoking was permitted. Oh, my God. And there was an open fireplace. Jeez. So eventually um, it did turn out, though, that it was safer than at the patent office, even with the smoking in the, in the open flame fireplace. the sun wasn't beating on it? No, the patent office caught on fire. Oh my god! So, <laughs> so they just moved it, and thank goodness they did because the patent office actually catches on fire, and it would have been destroyed in that fire. It's now escaped fire at least two times that we know of: the burning of Washington and now the burning of the patent office. So it's escaped twice. Um, so it got moved. All I can say is 
if for some reason somebody suggests that it should be moved from the National Archives, I think they should take them up on it because there must be a reason. Like this document is so it has a it has a guardian angel. It yeah. really does. Well, now it's encased in it. Yeah. Yeah. But in any case, I think that's fireproof. What's it? It is bulletproof, fireproof. Yeah. Yeah. Now, in 1880, on May 5th, um, there was a commission. Remember, before, four years earlier, that had been called upon and said, hey, let's try to figure out how to preserve this. Well, they now go back. They now go back um, to looking into what can we do to help preserve this now. So at the request of William Rogers, who was the president of the National Academy of Sciences, um, he goes to work um, and he goes and he says, whether such restoration of the declaration be expedient or practicable, and if in so way, what object can best be accomplished? In what way can the object best be accomplished? And so uh, the committee is a is reporting back on January 7th of 1881, and they say that Stone, who used the wet transfer method in the creation of his facsimile printing in 1823, removed some of the original ink, and that chemical restoration methods were at best imperfect and uncertain in their results. It is not expedient to attempt to restore the manuscript by any chemical means. They, however, recommended that it would be best to either cover the president receptacle of the manuscript with an opaque lid or to remove the manuscript from its frame and place it in a portfolio where it may be protected from the action of light. And no press copies of any part of it should be future permitted. So they said, don't let them do any more of these pressings. Um, no action though was taken at that time. So of course it, it didn't, we didn't do anything again. And it wasn't until 1894 when the state department announced that the rapid fading of the text of the original declaration of independence and the deterioration of the parchment upon its, which it is engrossed from exposure to light and lapse of time, render it impracticable for the department longer to exhibit the exhibit or handle it for the secure preservation of its present condition so far as may be possible it has been carefully wrapped and placed in a flat steel case a new plate for engravings was then made at this time by the coast and geodetic survey and then it was photographed for ladies home journal in 1898 Now, in April of 1903, Secretary of State John Hay solicited the help of the National Academy of Sciences again to provide recommendations that might be practicable for preservation. I like how they used to say practicable instead of practical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But he went on to explain that it is now kept out of light sealed between two sheets of glass, presumably (coughs) proof against air, and locked in a steel safe. I am unable to say, however, that in spite of these precautions observed for the past 10 years, 
the text is not continuing to fade and the parchment to wrinkle and perhaps break. So even though they were trying really hard to keep it out of the air and keep it out of the light, he wasn't able after 10 years to say that there still hadn't been more deterioration. And on April 24th, um, the Academy reported findings summarizing um, the physical history um, the instrument has suffered very seriously from very harsh treatment to which it was exposed in the early years of the Republic. Folding and rolling have creased the parchment. The wet process copying operation to which it was exposed about 1820 for the purpose of producing a facsimile copy removed a large portion of the ink. Subsequent exposure to the action of light for more than 30 years while the instrument was placed on exhibition has resulted in the, in the fading of the ink, particularly the signatures. The present method for caring for the instrument seems to be the best that can be suggested. The committee added its own opinion that the present method of protecting the instrument should be continued and that it should be kept in the dark and dry as possible and never again placed on exhibition. And Secretary, Henry, or Secretary Hayes accepted the recommendation, and the declaration was locked and sealed by order of Secretary Hay, and it was no longer shown to anyone except under his direction by 1904. So they locked it away. They locked it away. In 1904. But well, that didn't last. Well, let's continue on with that after a break. All right. All right. We'll be right back, folks. calendars, close your doors, and turn off all the lights. As twice a month, BTE Radio brings you a new episode of The Haunted Spotlight. Sean and Marianne Donnelly of Dark Shadow Ghost Tours dig deep into the archives of the Panic D database and take you inside a different location with each new episode. Learn the rich history and hear the paranormal claims of some of the most infamous and unsuspecting locations from around the country. Ever wonder what roams the property or lurks behind those closed doors? Curious about the true history of that creepy house that sits down the street? Want to know what evidence a paranormal investigation group may have captured? Then find out every other Sunday and tune in to BTE Radio for another chilling episode of The Haunted Spotlight, if you dare. Okay, folks, we are back talking about the Traveling Declaration, part two. Yes. <laughs> All right. So Continue on. Before break, right before break, we kind of said, okay, um, Hayes says we're going to lock this thing away and we're not letting anybody see it anymore. 1904. So, yes. Now, that, I said, didn't last long, though. I mean, it sort of did, but it didn't. In 1920 is actually when this kind of goes away. And so it comes back out of hiding. Um, April 21st of, 1st of 1920, um, the Secretary of State at the time, uh, Bainbridge Colby, decides to create yet another committee for the preservation. And so they draw them back in to look at, you know, hey, what can we do to prevent it from fire and, you know, more destruction, that kind of stuff. 
And so they come back with their report on May 5th. So May 5th of 1920, the new committee reports on the physical condition of the safes that they're housed in and also about what they believe that should be done. So they declare that the safes are constructed of thin sheets of steel. They're not fireproof and they would not offer much obstruction to an evil deposed person who wishes to break into them. So they were concerned about World War One. Well, World War One had just finished. Oh, so just finished. Okay. Yeah. They they looked at it when World War One was over. They looked at, okay, let's let's check out what's going on with our declaration. Um, but they, they said, hey, evildoers, if they want to, they, they, they can get into this. It's not going to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. It's going to be easy. And so not only that, it's not fireproof. And we've already had two fires it was almost in, you know. <laughs> two potential burnings. Yeah. So that was the safes. The physical condition of the declaration itself, they said they believed that the fading could go no further and that they didn't see any reason why the document should not be exhibited if the parchment is laid between two sheets of glass that are hermetically sealed at all of the edges and it gets exposed only to diffused light. So they come out and say, you know, I bet you if we do this, it will be okay. And, mm-hmm. we, and we really want people to be able to see this. So uh, the committee also noted that... Um, In 1903, President Theodore Roosevelt had actually directed that records relating to the Continental Congress be turned over to the Department of State, by the Department of State, to the Library of Congress. And so this transfer was made under the provision of the Act of February 25th of 1903 that any executive department may turn over to the Library of Congress books, maps, and other material no longer needed for use of the department. And the committee recommended that based on that, that any remaining papers that were there and the Declaration and the Constitution should all be given over. The chain of custody should be given to the Library of Congress. So this group of individuals that came was was a committee to look at preserving it. It's like, hey, by the way, um, back in 1903, we had a president, and he said that we should turn this stuff over to the Library of Congress. So why haven't we done that? Mm-hmm. And so that's what happens next. So the next part of its life, um, the fourth stage of the life of the Declaration after the signing, is when it goes to the Library of Congress. And so um, it moves to the Library of Congress, Um it turns out on September 28th of 1921, uh, Secretary of State Charles Evans Hughes addresses the new president of the time and says, I enclose an executive order for your signature. If you approve transferring the custody of the Library of Congress, the original Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States, which are now in the custody of this department, I recommend... Because uh, of the library in the Library of Congress, these muniments will be in the custody of experts skilled in the archival preservation, 
It will be in a building of modern fireproof construction where they can safely be exhibited to the many visitors who now desire to see them. So this wasn't to the National Archives. This was to the Library of Congress. Correct. Okay. And the new president at the time, Warren Harding, um, Ohio, uh, he agreed. Go Bucks. He agreed, and he uh, allowed that to happen. So on September 29th of 1921, he issued the executive order that authorized the transfer um, from um, from the department um, to the Library of Congress. And uh, so Secretary Hughes sends a copy of the order to the Library of Congress uh, librarian, Herbert Putnam, and uh, so he says, hey, Herbert, I'm sending this here to yeah, you. I wonder if Herbert Putman like, knew this was going to happen, or just all of a sudden he gets a letter and he goes, holy crap! <laughs> I personally... <laughs> wait, wait a minute, we're getting a Declaration of Independence. I personally think he was like, holy crap, I'm, uh, we're getting this. Because <coughs> it, it's history uh, says that he when he gets this letter, he's like... What? He sends a letter back saying that he is ready and eager, and he presents himself at the State Department like almost immediately to get it. And what well, happens? That'd be a day at work that would be like a day in infamy. <laughs> like, awesome. Guess what I got today? Are you kidding me? <laughs> yeah. So he goes over That's a piece uh, of to the State Department. <laughs> he he goes over to the State Department. State Department. Uh, the safes are opened, and the Declaration and the Constitution both get carried off of the off to the Library of Congress. I hope people find this stuff like interesting. as exciting as I do. Well, you know, it's like just thinking of oh my god, I get a letter, and you know, I'm the librarian, and the Declaration of Independence is coming here, and the Constitution, and the Constitution at the same time. Are you kidding me? Okay, so they transfer it by mail they wagon. Probably think we're just a bunch of geeks. <laughs> It's July 4th. How come you're not out partying? Oh, okay. <laughs> so they transfer it by mail wagon, and they cushion it on a pile of leather U.S. mail bags. Oh, yeah. Now they're going to be very yeah, protected. Yeah, now we're protecting you know, it. Not to mention that it went up the <laughs> river out in the ocean on a crickety old boat. It went by wagon to somebody's house. So now it's like cushioned mail bags. And yeah. And then immediately... Oh, man. It gets stuck in the safe safe in Putnam's office. So of course, it'd be locking that. He's locking thing it up, up in his office. What are we gonna do with it? Put it in a safe. And that's exactly it. He's like, I don't really know what to do with it. So on October third, he decides to really take up some, you know, hey, what are we gonna do with this? And um, he looks for a permanent location in in the facility, and he actually decides to request $12,000 uh, for the creation, basically, of a shrine for these things. And he wants to do this in such a way that they are going to be fully safeguarded and will give them distinction, that they would be open to inspection by the public at large. And he said that it needs a safe, dignified, adequate and in every way suitable material, and the material could be no less than bronze, otherwise it would be unworthy. And so he requests this twelve thousand dollars for this purpose, and then he would have and it then. This was then, in the twenties. 
So yes, in in the twenties, and so on uh, January sixteenth of nineteen twenty two, he presents this request for the twelve thousand uh, dollars, and he tells them, "Hey, we're going to put this on the second floor in the western side." Uh, in the long open gallery, in a railed enclosure. I'm going to have the material of bronze where these documents um, could be there with two auxiliary documents that lead up to them and that they could be not touched by anybody, um, but yet a passerby could see them. And they would be set in a permanent bronze frame where they would be protected from natural light and be lighted only by soft incandescent lamps and that they could re, uh, be achieved, the result could be achieved that you would have every visitor in Washington that would want to come see them and then go home and wish to tell everybody about it. And so they approved it. They approved it. They so approved I just it. ran a quick little thing. $12,000 in 1920 uh-huh. is equivalent to 153000 Today. Today. Well, they approved it. So March 20th of 1922, it was actually approved. So he, I would have voted yes. He goes in January to ask him for this, and in March, he, they, they approve it. So before long, they do um, set this into motion, and they hire a designer named Francis H. Bacon. 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 Now, his brother, Henry, Henry was Bacon. actually mm-hmm. the architect who was in charge of the Lincoln Memorial. Henry Bacon. Yeah. Now, materials that they, were, that they ended up using um, would be different kinds of marble. And the marble would come from New York, Vermont, Tennessee, the Greek islands of Tinos, and Italy. And the marbles that would surround the manuscripts themselves would be American, the floor and the balustrade would actually be made of the foreign marble, and it would correspond to the material that was used in the rest of the library. Now, the declaration itself would be housed in a gold frame, a uh, gold-plated bronzed door frame, and converted with a double pane of glass, covered with a double pane of glass. Specially prepared gelatin films, yellow films, would be placed between the plates to exclude any harmful rays of light. And there would be a 24-hour guard that would provide protection. So, uh, February 28th of 1924, the shrine actually gets dedicated. And it was dedicated in the presence of President and Mrs. Calvin Coolidge. Also there was Secretary Hughes, other distinguished guests as well. Um, But there was not a word that was spoken during the actual time, during the ceremony, where Putnam himself fitted the declaration into the new frame. There weren't any speeches, but there were two stanzas of America that were sung. Now, I did not know what America was. I actually looked that up when I had read this. Turns out that America is actually the name for the song we sing, My Country Tis of Thee. So, did I you know that. that? You knew that? I didn't well, yeah, know that. We played it in bands. So oh. I knew it was called America. Yeah, I, didn't, I wasn't in the band. Um, in any case, Putnam said the impression on the audience proved the emotional potency of documents 
animate with great tradition. So it then was placed there and um, it was there for a stream of visitors for, for quite some time. But it didn't stay there either. Uh, I'm, I'm Okay, well, now you really got me intrigued as to why they didn't keep it there. But, oh, uh, I know. Let me check. Okay, we are recording. Good thing, because you're 13 minutes. <laughs> um, it turns out it didn't stay there. So you're getting to the last because phase. Because of the war. Oh, okay. So not quite the last phase yet. Um, 1941. This is World War II. World War II is going on. And on April 30th, uh, there was some worry that it might actually engulf the United States. And, um, well, rightfully so, because that was Pearl Harbor and all that other stuff. And they had exactly, yeah, what Um, what would happen if they invaded United, right? So, continental United States, that was April 30th, and of course, Pearl Harbor was December 7th. So, they they like started making plans, and it's a good thing that they did. Um, so it turns out there's a guy named, um, Archibald McLeish. And, and again, if you have a foreign country attacking us on the mainland, that's one thing that they're going to go for. Is they're gonna, That's like capture the flag. Ha ha, we got the declaration and, right. you know, we'll never see it again. But Right. So Archibald McLeish is the newly appointed librarian of Congress. And he writes to the Secretary of Treasury, Henry Morgenthau Jr. And he asks if there might be some space in the bullion depository in Fort Knox for his most valuable okay, so materials. This is one that goes to Fort Knox. I was thinking mm-hmm. World War One, but it was World no, War II. No, it's World War II. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he he writes back and he says, Yeah, sure, we will definitely Oh yeah, do sure, that. bring it on down. Not yeah. a problem. <laughs> yeah. So he says, Absolutely. Um and actually, the reply was um, that, yes, we would indeed make available uh, space as necessary for the storage of such of the more important papers you might designate. Now, on December 7th, 1941, Pearl Harbor uh, happens. And on December 23rd, they decide we should move these things. Mm-hmm. It, this might be a, a big problem now. So they decided to, to move it. Uh, they remove it from the shrine. They place it between two sheets of acid-free manila paper. And then it's carefully wrapped in a container of all-rag neutral millboard and place it in a specially designed bronze container. It was very late at night, and so they then uh, secure it with padlocks on each side and then they go off for Christmas. <laughs> they leave it just kind of sitting there. And the day after Christmas, the attorney general actually rules that the librarian didn't need any authority from Congress or the president to take actions that they deem necessary for the proper protection and preservation of the documents in his charge. So he says, all right, let's do it. And so they packed it up. Um, and under constant armed guard, they seal it with lead, pack it in a heavy box that weighs 150 pounds, and uh, it gets transferred at 5 p.m. Uh, out of the building 
with other vital records in other boxes that got loaded on an armed escorted truck taken to Union Station, loaded into a compartment of a Pullman sleeper. Uh, East Lake was the Pullman sleeper that it was on. And um, under armed secret service, they uh, transferred it. There were actually Secret Service agents on all the neighboring compartments to that building, or to that particular sleeper. And it left Washington at 6.30 at night, and it arrived uh, at 10.30 in the morning on December 27th of 1941 to Louisville, Kentucky, where more Secret Service agents and a cavalry troop of the 13th Armored Division met the train. There was a convoy and the contents uh, were taken to the Bullion Depository at Fort Knox and placed in compartment 24 in the outer tier on ground level. The declaration was uh, then looked at and periodically examined during its time at Fort Knox, which um, was for a few years. Uh, It was actually there until 1944. But in 1942, during one of the examinations, the declaration was noted to be um, coming detached from its mount. And this included the upper right corner, which had been stuck down with glue. And uh, May 14th of 1942, Werner Clapp, uh, Library of Congress, Congress official, noted at one time in January of 1940, an attempt had been made to reunite the detached upper right-hand corner to the main portion by means of a strip of scotch cellulose tape, tape. which was still in place, and it was discolored to a molasses color. The various mending efforts glue had been spattered in two places on the obverse of the document. So they decided, hey, while it's here, we're examining it, we're looking at it, let's go ahead and try to con- to do some conservation. So what they did was they did a conservation treatment where they stabilized and rejoined the upper right corner and under secrecy, George Stout and Evelyn Elrich of the Fogg Museum at Harvard University actually traveled to Fort Knox and performed the mending of of small tears and they removed the adhesive and the scotch tape and rejoined the upper right corner. And they did this over a period of two days. So they wow. spent two days doing that little bit of restoration. So it was actually worked on while it was at Fort Knox. In secret. In secrecy. Yes. Wow. That's interesting. There you go, folks. You listen to these two things. You probably didn't know that. I didn't know it. Yeah, it had scotch tape on it. (laughs) All right. That's that's amazing. Anyway. All right, so it's 1944. Military authorities assure Library of Congress that all the danger of enemy attack has passed. So they decide it's time to bring the Declaration back home. So on September 19th, the documents are all withdrawn from Fort Knox, and on October 1st at 11.30 a.m., the doors of the library were opened with the Declaration back in its shrine. So you don't know for sure whether they used the security measures that they did to get there to go back or not? I don't know. 
stumped you. Sorry. I don't know. I would assume they would use some some of those same measures. Um, they didn't really specify in any of the documentation that I found thus far, but um, they did. When they the reason why I up, say that, you know, the reason why I say that, you know, those little Secret Service and all that is that costs some money to move. It that. does. You know it does. I mean? Probably more than what it was to. Oh, you wait till you find out what it was when they moved it from the Library oh, of Congress. Geez. Okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah, Jumping to, ahead. to its National Archives. Yeah, but um, so, anyways, they have it now back at at uh, its shrine in the Library of Congress. Um, when it opened up at 11:30 in the morning, so it was just bam right back there, and uh, they're looking at it there and they're saying, you know, now that we have it back here. I wonder if there's any better way of preserving this, you know, with new technologies that we have. I mean, we just came up with all kinds of stuff for the war and everything. Is there anything that we've come up with that might be able to help us out better? I mean, the last time we did this, we decided we'll put this yellow gelatin sheet in there, but it was already so illegible to start with, and we put that yellow sheet on top of it, made it even harder to see. You know, maybe there's something else that we could do. So they decide to um, look for recommendations again. And so May 5th of 1949, um, the studies are are done. And in 1951, they follow some of these uh, recommendations and the declaration gets sealed in a thermopane enclosure filled with properly humidified helium and then the exhibit case uh, was ex- equipped with a filter a special filter to screen out damaging light and it also had the effect of preventing any harm from future air pollution which seemed to be starting to really pick up and then it sits there for a little while but it does make one more official move and that is to its present home at the National Archives. Now, this was a long time in coming. This wasn't, like, immediate. I mean, it's sitting there back in the Library of Congress again for a while. Um, President Hoover actually laid the cornerstone, though, in 1933 of the National Archives building. And when he did that... He announced that the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution would eventually be kept there on that site. And in 1934, President Franklin D. Roosevelt appointed the first archivist for the United States, um, Robert Diggs Wimberly Connor, Wimberly Connor. And uh, he told Connor that the valuable historic documents, such as the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution, would reside at the National Archives building, and that the Library of Congress um, would give it up. But the librarian at the Library of Congress, Putnam, he's like, no. Uh uh-uh, uh, I'm not giving this up. Are imagine. you kidding me? I brought it here. I had it protected during the war, you know. Uh, so he did not want to give that up. And he said, if you want it, there's going to have to be an act of Congress that's going to have it transferred from here to the National Archives. Because nice. it was like an act of Congress that got it here in the first place. It's going to take an act of Congress to make it go he away. He told the president that? 
Uh, I don't know if he told the president so much as um, he told Connor that, and Connor told the president. So he kind of indirectly told the president, but it's kind of awesome, actually. He's like, "I want an act of Congress, or it's staying right here." So what they did was um, Connor's like, "President, um, it, it's." It's not going to happen while Putnam's there. We may as well just wait till he retires. He's getting out there. He's not going to be there forever. So when he retires in 1939, Archibald McLeish was nominated to replace him. And he agreed with Roosevelt and Connor that the important documents really should be in the National Archives. But due to World War II being kind of in play and it getting moved to Fort Knox and then coming back and whatnot. Um, by the time it came back, he wasn't in charge there anymore. McLeish had actually been appointed as Assistant Secretary of State, and a guy named um, Solon J. Buck um, was con- given Connor's job as the archivist of the United States. And he felt, hey, you know what? These documents are in good hands at the Library of Congress, so we're just going to leave them sit there. His successor, though, Wayne Grover, disagreed. And a guy named Luther Evans, the librarian of Congress that was avoided by, uh, was appointed by Truman, President Truman, in 1945, shared the opinion that they should go to the National Archives. So, in 1951, um, effort. Evans and Buck actually worked together with their different staff members and legal advisors to figure out how to legally have this transferred. Um, And so the archive's position was that the documents were federal records and therefore were covered by something called the Federal Records Act of 1950. And this was known to be paramount to and took precedence over the 1922 act that had appropriated money for the shrine for the Library of Congress. So Senator Green, who was the chairman of the Joint Committee of the Library, agreed to the transfer, but he made stipulations. He said it would be necessary for his committee to actually act on the matter. And so Evans, solely by himself, goes April 30th of 1952 to the committee meeting and they don't write down what was said at this meeting at all. Um, but whatever was said, it went in the favor of moving it to the National Archives because the documents would then be transferred to the National Archives um, and the official depository of the record, the government's records would now be um, over there. And it was also the judgment of the committee that the National Archives was actually the most nearly bomb-proof building in Washington. And so that was one of the pushes that, you know, we can really protect these documents there. So at 11 a.m. on December 13th of 1952, we have the moving. Brigadier General Stoit uh, O. Ross, who was the commanding general of the Air Force Headquarters Command, formally received the documents at the Library of Congress. Twelve members of the Armed Forces Special Police carried six pieces of parchment in their 
helium-filled glass cases. And so it was six pieces of parchment. It was not just the declaration that was moving that day, okay? Um, but they moved these um, helium-filled glass cases enclosed in wooden crates down the library steps through a line of 88 service women an armored Marine Corps personnel carrier awaited the documents, and once they had been placed on mattresses inside the vehicle, they were accompanied by a color guard, ceremonial troops, the Army Band, the Air Force Drum and Bugle Corps, two light tanks. Tanks? Tanks. Four servicemen carrying submachine guns, and a motorcycle escort in a parade down Pennsylvania and Constitution Avenues to the Archives Building. Both sides of the parade route were lined with Army, Navy, Coast Guard, Marine, and Air Force personnel. And at 11.35, remember, at 11 a.m., they got custody of it. At 11.35, General Ross and 12 special policemen arrived at the National Archives Building carrying the crates up the stairs and formally delivering them to the custody of the archivist of the United States, Wayne Grover. Wow. Where it then joined the Bill of Rights, which was already there. So the um, Constitution, I believe, and the um, Bill of Rights, or, and the um, Declaration were part of that caravan that joined the Bill of Rights then at the National Archives. And uh, they did have a, a, a shrining ceremony two days later on December 15th of 1952, and it was um, pretty pomp and circumstance too. The Chief Justice of the United States, um, Fred Vinson, presided over the ceremony, and it was attended by officials from more than 100 national civil civic patriotic, religious, veterans, educational, business, and labor groups. And after the invocation, um, Frederick Brown Harris, uh, chaplain of the Senate, Governor Ed Albert N. Carvel of Delaware, the first state to ratify the Constitution, then called roll of the United States in order in which they were ratified by the Constitution, that they ratified the Constitution, and were then admitted to the con to the union. As each state was called, a servicewoman carrying the state flag entered the exhibition hall and remained in attention in front of the display cases circling the hall. And then President Harry S. Truman, their featured speaker, made a statement. The Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and the Bill of Rights are now assembled in one place for display and safekeeping. We are engaged here today in a symbolic act. We are enshrining these documents for future ages. This magnificent hall has been constructed to exhibit them, and the vault beneath that we have built to protect them is as safe from destruction as anything that the wit of modern man can devise. All this is an honorable effort based upon reverence for the great past, and our generation can take just pride in it. Wow. That was in 52. Yes. So um, that was a big day. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> I mean, everybody was there. The president's making this speech. It was wonderful. Um, 
Then they did have a benediction afterwards. Um, and then the U.S. Marine Corps band played the Star Spangled Banner, and the president gets escorted from the hall, followed by the 48 flag members, and the ceremony was then just over. So today, um, those documents, including uh, the one that we've been talking about, um, all, all two episodes now, um, stand in the center of a semicircle in the display case in that in that hall and um, the declaration the constitution the bill of rights are slightly elevated on they're under armed guard they're in bronze and a marble shrine the bill of rights and two of the leaves of the constitution lay flat Above them, the Declaration of Independence is held impressively in an upright case, constructed of ballistically tested glass and plastic laminate. Ultraviolet light filters in the laminate give the inner layer a slightly greenish hue, and at night the documents are stored in an underground vault. Now, in 1987, um, the National Archives and Records Administration actually installed a $3 million camera and computerized system that was uh, going to now monitor the condition of these documents. And um, the Charter's monitoring system is what it's called, and it was designed by the Jet Propulsion Library Laboratory, uh, the JPL, and it was to assess the state of preservation and it can detect any changes in readability due to ink flaking, offsetting of ink to glass, changes in document dimensions, and ink fading. The system is capable of recording a very fine detail, one inch square area of the document, and later retaking the pictures in the exact same places under the same conditions of lighting and charge coupled devices sensitivities. Um, periodic measurements are compared to a baseline image that determine if there are any changes or deterioration um, that are invisible to the human eye that have actually taken place. And so at this point, they're saying that it hasn't had any more deterioration. Wow. Okay. So that is where it is today under the security of armed guard and this um, this charters monitoring system and uh hopefully this is the last of its movements but the one thing that i'm sad about is that it with all the movements that it had in 1976 they didn't take it back to philadelphia you know they took for it 200 yeah, yeah they took it back for the 100th they well, didn't take it back for the 200th but from the national archives you know, i could see where that would be an issue yeah I mean, it's finally in its safe yeah. home, you know, but that's the one thing about it, it traveled all over, but they didn't take it back for the 200th. But, you know, it is what it is. It's safe and secure. Yeah. So. Wow. Pretty impressive journey. Whew. Let me Two tell episodes. you. Let me tell you, that it has gone through <laughs> some major workout. Yeah. If I traveled just as many miles as that. I hope I look as good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks. Well, uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, if you'd like to drop us a line, send us an email. Please go to our website, which is untoldhistoryrevealed.blogspot.com, 
and scroll down on the right hand side there's a form where you can fill out and it'll shoot us an email um, love to hear your comments suggestions or or anything and even uh, if you have suggestions for future episodes I'd like to hear from you um, other than that uh, we're going to close this one out All and right. uh, hey we're back on track yeah this is going to come out Wednesday at 9 o'clock on schedule. That's right. And uh, we'll see what we're going to do next. All right. I think we're going to end up going to Washington. I think we might. Yeah. All right. So, uh, hey, until next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>